case file number 3.1. Back from the black hat. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So, Ymir, mm-hmm. there is new news on the Colonial Pipeline event. Um, it's even like a month or so out of date at this point, and which means <laughs> it's probably a few months before, uh, possibly six, right. before this is released. But uh, I'd like to report that the men in black suits, the FBI, managed to recover 36.7 bitcoins of the 75 bitcoins paid in that ransom. Really? Yeah, due to poor security of the Bitcoin wallet that it was destined for. No, oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Now, this was done by DarkSide, and DarkSide is a ransomware as a service. So we believe that DarkSide got its cut, and the, the group that actually did the, uh, the hard work of getting the ransomware in colonial and doing all the the things that actually blew things up they right. were the ones that got screwed what is what is 37 bitcoins worth right now uh according to the numbers in the article i was looking at at the time it was 2.3 million at that moment oh yeah it, it's two um 1.7 right now damn such are the vicissitudes of investing in bitcoin yeah anyway so the reason why we're talking about ransomware again is that you and I just came back from DEF CON 29. And I was there for Black Hat 2, and there was a lot of talk about the kind of escalation of ransomware over the last two to four years. Yeah. And I figured this would be a good time to talk about that, especially since I have fresh notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There was a major focus of the conference that seemed this year. Yeah. So you and I were at the t- at one of the ransomware panels where lawyer Liz was talking about stuff, and she was um, involved in the Atlanta ransomware attack uh, in 2017. Right. I don't even remember hearing about that one. Uh, did you? No. I like as she was talking about, it, I was like, I don't remember ever hearing that Atlanta got hit. Well, that was actually the big thing that I would see that I saw during this is I'm going to give you a completely uncomprehensive list of state and local organizations that got hit over that two to four year period. I mean, Mm. I started doing the list and there was just more and more and more that I was finding reports about. So I had to keep it constrained. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot here. Um, Anyway, so we're going to start with Atlanta. It happened in uh, 2017 and they were hit by apparently the Sam Sam ransomware. And it isn't a phishing malware kind of propagation technique. What they mm. use typically is brute force password attacks. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. Well, they got into Atlanta and basically at about 5.30, a little bit after 5.30 in the morning, 
people ha- were having problems making payments to the city. They were having problems with court information for court dates and stuff like that. So they went and they shut it all down. Okay. The ransom was 50K. Very soon thereafter, uh, there were reports of it costing like $2 million to recover. Jeez. Yeah, well, lawyer Liz in that talk that we were at said that it that the costs ha- are at $20 million now, four years later, and they're not over. That it's still going up from here. They're not done paying for this yet. That's insane. It really is. Now, on November 26, 2018, the Justice Department indicted two Iranian hackers for the attack, charging Farmars Savandi and Mohammed Badi Shah Mansuri as part of the SamSam group that created the SamSam malware. So, I mean, the damage is huge. Yeah. Even though we have the guys and everything, because they didn't get that much of a percentage of what it costs to recover. Mm-hmm. And this is actually true of a lot of the economic analysis of a lot of crime and corruption is that it costs a lot more than the perpetrators usually get out of it. Right. Also in 2017, Mecklenburg County, North Carolina affected about a tenth of all the servers in use of the, in, in the county. So about 50 out of about 500. The ransom was $23,000. The county manager said that they reported that they wouldn't pay and that the infection was probably a phishing email single click installer. Now for that one, the ransom wasn't very much. They decided not to pay. That was kind of right at the beginning of people talking about, hey, maybe we should pay. Maybe functionality is more important than the concerns about not paying them and not encouraging ransomware. Right. So it's possible that out of all of the folks that we're going to talk about, they were probably, they might have been the best prepared for recovery. <laughs> Louisiana, 2019, the governor's office declared a state of emergency. Now, in the press report, they said the ransom was not paid and no data was lost. So we can conclude from that, assuming that they had all the information at the time. Let's not suspect that anybody's covering anything up. But assuming that they had all the information at the time, they believed that they had the ability to recover the information that was compromised. According to reporting, it was about 450 servers and 3,500 laptops were affected. Damn. Well, they say the recovery costs were only $3 million and that was entirely covered by their cyber insurance. I couldn't find a lot more information about that particular incident, but that's about all that, that I could find. There is city of Miami uh, paid attackers about $600,000 worth of Bitcoin in 2019. Okay. And that was shortly after uh, Riverdale, uh, Florida, I believe, uh, got hit by a, a similar attack. I wasn't able to confirm whether or not it was the same hour or anything like that. I just couldn't find the technical details. Mm. But then the one that everybody probably did hear about, which was Baltimore in 2019. Yeah, that was like the only major city one that I heard of. And it could have been because I was living around that area at the time. And like, because it was close to home, that's what struck me. But yeah, well, the other thing that happened at that point, though, a lot of um, the articles contemporaneously were reporting that it had to do with the eternal blue vulnerability, which we touched on earlier. Oh, yeah, that's right. Now. As reported by Krebs on Security, an analyst named Joe Stewart got a hold of the binaries and did an analysis, and in none of the binaries that he had did he find evidence of eternal blue. Hmm. 
there's no way to prove a negative. You, there's no way to be yeah. completely certain of this, but he said it was highly unlikely. And, right. you know, I believe him. But the original ransom demand was for about 100Ks worth of, worth of Bitcoin. At that particular moment, I believe it was 78K, but it's, it's reported as about 100K in a lot of places. But within the month, a month, the breach cost, because Baltimore decided not to pay, were estimated at $18 million. Damn. Yeah. So, like, the targets aren't little companies. The targets are all over the place. And in some ways, things are getting a little bit worse because we're seeing a proliferation of supply chain attacks that allow for an, an extended hit. And... Like the famous supply chain attack that we've all talked about are is the solar winds sunburst attack that according to CrowdStrike says that it's related to the group Stellar Particle. Now, best I could I could figure out from, from reading a lot of things, and the details were sketchier than I had expected. They fished solar winds and got persistent access to the solar winds network. They got their first stage code built into the code build for Solaris Orion. Mm. And all the Orion systems got their updates and, you know, everybody patched like they were supposed to. Right. (laughs) You know, pre-hacked for your convenience. Yep. Uh, (laughs) But the thing that I found very interesting about that is that they had a pretty sophisticated targeting mechanism built into the way that they, that they propagated. They, got their second stage downloader in, which was about targeting, about who do they want to hack. Mm -hmm. And they targeted the folks that they really did care about exploiting rather than exploiting everybody that they were able to get their loader onto. Mm. So uh, one thing that I did see some details on, and unfortunately I can't be full give full details on this because I'm not, I got some inside information on the, on, on this one related to the to the work I do. So I'm going to be a little vaguer than I'd like to be. I just don't remember where some of this stuff came from. Mm. But the second stage command and control systems used a well-known cloud service coupled with dynamic uh, name generation mechanism to allow for some of the command and control. And the thing that I found interesting there is that in contrast to some earlier dynamic domain name generation stuff, the length of the of the names varied quite significantly it wasn't just hey they incremented back and forth by one and the the, the lengths were significantly different oh really yeah which is an interesting thing to know because in fact uh pretty recently at one of the kind of heuristic mechanisms that that uh we tried to do where i work is use some of the dns data that we had to zero into a large number of unique dns requests of lengths above 20 characters. Okay. Now you have to tune out a lot of content distribution engines when you do that. But, (laughs) but, you know, just, you know, a kind of sonar looking at heuristic ways of maybe finding potential problems with lower confidence analysis. And we were employing a technique that other folks have used. We were just, you know, employing it where we're at using the data that we had. Right. But you take that the idea of that technique that te- the, that technique is looking for unique analysis of the same length. You know, somebody hits 100 different 24 uh, character length domain names 
in the last hour that are all different, mm-hmm. well, they show up on this thing. And that wouldn't happen in here. In fact, it wouldn't be shocking if somebody would be would have tuned out the first and second levels of those domains because it's a well-known cloud service that has a lot of variation in the uh, in the host level name in DNS. So, I mean, a lot of those, some of those techniques may be wearing out their welcome. Right, right. Um, but the last thing that was really interesting in the Solar Winds attack, based on the CrowdStrike analysis, was that the attacker showed sophistication manipulating Office 365 and, and Azure environments. Oh. So, unlike the standard ransomware propagation where it's encrypting stuff on your system and then trying to jump to other systems, mm-hmm. they showed enough sophistication to potentially deal with your cloud storage mm. directly or, or even uh, Office 365 mailboxes and stuff and other data that uh, you would th- you might have thought was safe in the cloud. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you figure the stuff in your cloud, you're like, all right, we might get hit, but at least we got the cloud back up. Hmm. Exactly. In fact, we're going to get, we're going to talk a little bit more about that um, in a little bit. But uh, I figured it would be a good idea to bring up a non-ransomware supply chain attack kind of the first one that I really knew about, which was in November 2013, Target got breached. Mm. You might have heard of that one. Yep. So the attackers hit a few weeks before Thanksgiving, November 15th, and they uploaded some credit card stealing software to some, but not all of the Target cash registers. Uh, just in time, probably for Black Friday. Yeah. The the time reporting was was a little fuzzy, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. They got there by using credentials that were acquired from their HVAC contractor, Fazio Mechanical Services. Okay. Now, this is an important example from a defense perspective because one of the big things that they were criti- that Target was criticized for was the lack of network segmentation of the stuff that outside contractors had access to versus the payment side. I was just going to ask, like, why would the HVAC guys have access to your cash registers? Like, Well, I mean, it's because it's very easy to make a big flat network mm, um, yep. segment. But it is worth saying that segmentation, the further you go, the bigger costs it has. You talk to a lot of cloud um, people who call themselves cloud architects, and the number of people that call themselves cloud architects versus the number of people who are actually there, I have my suspicions. But uh, one thing that they'll say a lot is they'll talk about micro-segmentation. ACLs on a basically a per system or possibly per application basis. Hmm. Well, I've been in environments that have done that level, that have been at that level of segmentation prior to the cloud. And there is some real operations and, man- and maintenance costs to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that. In fact, you've talked to me about one or two of the missions that you're in that um, because of the way that they do ACLs, it's basically on a per host basis. Yeah, and it's very it's very cumbersome for like just day-to-day operations, especially like if you're just trying to do like a simple test thing and you're just like, I, I got to mm-hmm. quick try this, but yeah. It can slow down testing. It can significantly slow down development. Um, I was working with a firewall team where we did a, lo- a, a very high degree of segmentation. Matter of fact, like an order of magnitude or more from any other place that I've been. Right. And it would be pretty common for the one to two week firewall change process to set an entire team's project back by one or two weeks mm. because of 
how long the process took. And uh, in that particular place, we significantly accelerated that process and it still wasn't good enough. It's It's still, to the best of my understanding from the folks that I still talk to over there, it's still a constant point of contention of how long it takes to make a firewall change. And, you know, firewall changes, they require usually some fairly specialized knowledge. Not everybody on your network team is going to be able to do it for both from a permission and a technical acumen perspective. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You want to make sure you do it right. And because of that, you know, that process is going to, can take a while regardless. And the more segmentation you do, the more often you have to make those changes. So there's a real business case to be made and a real difficulty balancing those priorities. But having said all that, your payment stuff should be kind of on its own little, on its own segmentation. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, there's, there's something to argue with, like, yeah, having all of that segmentation or like that micromanagement level, but like dividing up your HVAC and all of your payment infrastructure, like that's usually a good thing. Like the same one, like, you know, when corporate networks dividing your user network from everything else. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, you can argue like breaking it down even more and more and more, but you should at least break it up like once or twice. Yeah. Um, we ran into a very similar problem in the big breach that, that I was involved with where they didn't have any segmentation mm-hmm. and segmenting payment specifically from the rest of their network would have had a major impact on how deep their, their breach would have gotten. And right whether the exfiltration that they used would have been possible. Yeah. And if you, I feel like that happens a lot in ransomware. Um, you see it pretty often that like a random, you know, Joe Schmo user is the one that downloads it, but it infects all parts of the network because there's no segmentation whatsoever. So it just jumps from, you know, his computer straight to the share that's shared between him and like yeah. some infrastructure systems and then goes from there and branches out elsewhere. Yeah. Um, I mean, all the complicated stuff, that, that people have been developing for figuring out what lateral movement means doesn't mean anything when your network is big and flat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then there was the the uh, Kesia R evil thing, which we did an episode specifically on, mm-hmm. but it infected network management systems used by managed services providers, which is why it's a supply chain attack. And that affected more than a thousand companies. So cybersecurity in a lot of ways is all about risk management. Um, so what do you do when you want to manage risk? You get insurance. Mm. There is cyber insurance now. Yeah, it was kind of a, a new thing to me. Like I, I'd heard very offhandedly like a year or two ago or something like that. But when when they were talking about it in the talk and mentioned like, like straight up cybersecurity insurance. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's like a legit thing now. Well, so I was reading actually some stuff about that because I only I heard that heard about it, but because I've been working in the federal sector, it wasn't something that was on my radar. So I did a lot of reading about that for this episode. (laughs) Um, And in addition to reading about the cybersecurity side, I actually read a couple of of articles on various insurance industry trade publications about it. Mm, Okay. And that was was an interesting read, surprisingly. (laughs) Really? Yeah. uh, So one of the things that, that was shared was that the Royal United Services Institute did a research paper about cyber insurance. Mm. And they had two very important conclusions to, to kind of take home. One is that the availability of cyber insurance encourages ransomware and other attacks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess they, they, they know someone's going to pay for it. Right. And unlike disaster insurance, there's a volition. In the, 
tar- targeting and paying off is not exactly random. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who you know? Maybe Mother Nature is getting some kind of back end payouts from insurance companies. Yes. What is her Bitcoin wallet address? Yeah. <laughs> and the other is that cybersecurity insurance, cyber insurance, is actually a significant risk to the insurer. That because it's kind of payouts are accelerating, they actually put some underwriters at risk. Hmm. In fact, they've seen payouts increase substantially in the last 12 to 18 months, uh, a 400% rise in cases. Yeah, we're at a point industry-wide where they're reporting that payouts are nearly 70% of premiums, which is the edge of profitability in the industry, in the insurance industry. Damn. Yeah. Um, So like on the edge of not being worthwhile to as a business. Yeah, 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 because... Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, so it went from 2016, I believe that it said, uh, a payout rate of about 44% to mm. our current 70% and only going up. There's a site, Munich, uh, Munich RE. They suggested that in their analysis that COVID-19 caused an acceleration of ransomware development, which may have been part of the reason why we've seen such a, an acceleration. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, especially with everyone working from home, it yeah. seems like it would be easier to get onto someone's system than like, you know, propagate from their system into their internal net via, you know, their VPN connection or anything like that. Yeah. And also a, a delta between the security you have, you can apply on-prem to what you can apply to to uh, remote users. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially at the start of COVID because again, places that I've worked, one of the significant things has been, how do we make defense when everybody's remote, when Mm. more of our population is remote? How do we maintain the same level or even our higher level of security? Just uh, reading like uh, Reddit, like the sysadmin Reddit, like around when uh, everyone started working from home, there were so many posts of people just like, well, we all got to work from home and I've been telling them to upgrade the infrastructure, you know, X, Y, Z. And it's like, now I've got to have 50 users running on this, like, you know, piece of crap uh, firewall. Yeah. Folks that were doing remote access with single factor might might go to multi-factor. Um, there are now software as a service mechanisms for for dealing with uh, with internet connectivity from road warriors, yep. the software as a service connections to your mail, uh, what we like to call direct to service, mm-hmm. like your system going to Office 365 instead of having to go through your network and then applying multi-factor authentication to that. Yep. But a lot of organizations straight out of the box, they weren't necessarily prepared for all of that to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that that might've been some of it that that there was some greater exposure and to your point of people are more used to dealing with external emails and stuff like that yeah yeah but i would contend that the acceleration of of ransomware was inevitable and while we may have seen a little bit of uh, that happen a little bit faster i don't think that it covid caused more it just caused it sooner yeah because like there aren't many insurances where like because of knowing that you have insurance someone's going to actively target you mm-hmm. i mean there is it used to be i actually got into a car accident because of this but there used to be like a handful of people that will cut you off on the highway and immediately like apply their brake to cause mm-hmm. a rear collision because if you are the last car in a rear collision in a lot of states you are the one at fault immediately and then they can get a quick insurance payout uh that way 
but you are actively putting yourself also in like harm's way. Yeah. Whereas with ransomware, like you're not really in any harm's way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might electrocute yourself accidentally on your laptop, but yeah. Well, so to wrap this side of things up, uh, according to the conversations I had with folks at Black Hat and DefCon, and I think that they talked about this in the in the panel that that you and I were were at, the premiums are accelerating very quickly over the last six months or so. Oh yeah, I got a mess. Another. Uh, talk that I was at uh, Black Hat also said that the underwriting standards are getting significantly stricter. They're asking about, hey, how often do you patch? They're they're asking about, do you, what kind of remote access do you allow? Are you putting in remote authentic or multi-factor authentication? What other defenses do you have? They're being a lot stricter and really crawling into how your cybersecurity operations go before they decide how much your premiums are. On the plus side, like a job opportunity for more uh, cybersecurity professionals to like move into the insurance realm as advisors and consultants. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely a, a thing. Um, one of the things that was interesting, and another interesting thing in the reading was the Insurance Journal report reported on July seventh, uh, twenty twenty one, that ransomware operators successfully attacked three North American insurance brokers brokerages over a matter of weeks. Those brokerages did sell cyber insurance. Part of what they suspect is that that the targeting of those insurance brokerages was for intelligence on who was insured so that they could target them. That makes a lot of sense. It's also kind of like a, a watchman thing of like who insures the insurers. Yeah. Um, I mean, another thing that, that was pretty interesting, there was a report pretty recently in, I think, Bleeping Computers, uh, Week in Ransomware Roundup. Uh, that one ransomware operator was actually trying to recruit insiders for infecting their employers. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. It's kind of interesting from my side because I've been involved in in a handful of real incidents that affected more than you know one laptop kind of thing. Right. But I never really dealt with ransomware. It hasn't been a significant thing that I've had to deal with, and I don't know if maybe I'm lucky or if we actually do a good job i mean i like to think we do a good job yeah but that's the perpetual infosec imposter syndrome <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's, it's the same way like on my stuff is like it's not you know that is that is a concern but it's also just nothing that we've ever been hit with in mm-hmm. on any side of thing that i think i can remember or maybe we haven't it just wasn't reported yeah well, I mean, if it was at that magnitude, chances are it wasn't a really major event. Yeah, yeah. That's like true. if it didn't, if it didn't affect operations enough for people to, to for word to at least leak out. Yeah, yeah. You know, eyebrows were raised, and yeah, yeah. I find that kind of my biggest hurdle in talking about this is I don't have really a lot of personal experience with it. Yeah, like I found like the the, the talk was very interesting. It was also interesting just from. Um, uh, like Lori Liz talking about how when she went into it, she was very much of the mindset of like, do not pay ransoms. Like we do yeah. not negotiate. But then seeing, you know, some of these smaller municipalities in uh, Georgia basically being like, yo, we, we got to pay this. Otherwise we can't like literally take care of our citizens. Or I think it was also her, maybe someone else talking about the fact that like, you want to be like, Hey, why aren't you using your money to upgrade all your stuff? Like be on the cutting edge. But a lot of these places are like, we get so little money. 
that it's either upgrade our servers or like feed our elderly for the month. And we're, they're going to choose the latter. Like, yeah, that was tough to hear, but those are real concerns. And going back to what we were to the incidents we were talking about earlier, how much not getting back up and running costs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when you talk about like colonial pipeline, we know that the company didn't bear anywhere close to the actual costs of it, the impact to the gasoline distribution system. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's a tough thing. The the fact that paying has become more open now has actually opened some uh, some questions on the legal side that I'll get to in just a second. Uh, so, first of all, one thing that lawyer Liz talked about in her incident was that with the computers not working, they didn't have the phone numbers for the people that they needed to call. Yeah, when I when I when I when I came home for the talk, I, I was telling my girlfriend girlfriend about it, and like, yeah, that, that that amused me that she had printed it out. Like, yes, I think I think to quote her, as an old person does, or something like that. But it's a really good point. In the event the systems aren't reliable, you have to have the ability to contact the folks that you need. And I know that on the wall in our sock is all of the technical points of contact, mm-hmm. but not the management ones. Mm, yeah. So as a general incident response rule, having all of that stuff available is really important. But for ransomware, you have an additional thing. If you're going to pay, if you're if that's a thing that your organization has decided to do, and we've gone over the reasons why you would, you need to know who to contact from your financial institutions mm-hmm. and who you need within your organization to approve that kind of payment. And send all of the correct information over because to be able to pay millions of dollars, you're probably going to need multi-factor authentication. Please say you need multi-factor authentication. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> so there's some legal side stuff. One, in fact, this is one of the talks at Blackout, which was given by a lawyer that didn't talk a lot of technical details. But one of the things he talked about is that it's very easy if you don't pay attention to the rules to lose attorney-client privilege between your incident response and your litigation response. Uh, Yeah. If it's not directly related to preparation for litigation, it's not covered by attorney-client privilege. Okay. And if you can't prove that those two things are siloed off from one another, a lot of stuff from incident response, if the lawyers are in the room, can break attorney-client privilege. Interesting. Okay. And that could be a big deal if you're a company and part of what you're dealing with is the liability of whether or not you did due diligence. Because yeah. this is America. And if you watch the Legal Eagle YouTube channel, mm-hmm. you know that anybody can sue anybody for anything. <laughs> yep. I love this channel. So the fact is that litigation is very likely to happen. The major incident I was part of, it was worth nearly $200 million, I believe, in legal fees. And, and associated actions related to incident response. It was a very big incident. <laughs> um, uh, so it's very important in those cases that you have two tracks and that the technical investigations are limited to statements of fact, because those are going to be discoverable by law enforcement and through litigation discovery. Hmm. And so one of the tips he actually gave was that especially outside incident responders, but everybody in the incident response team needs to be limited to statements of fact and not say, hey, we should have had multi-factor authentication. Right, yeah. Stuff like that. But 
to the payoff points that we were just talking about in the financial institutions, there's a thing called the Office of Foreign Assets Control, and they enforce sanctions. And so if you have reasonable belief that the folks that you're paying off, and we just talked about the SamSam folks being from Iran, right? well, they're subject to sanctions. Mm. And any violation of any provision is subject to fines up to a million dollars for you personally. Ha ha. <laughs> at least that's my interpretation. I am not a lawyer. Also, don't pay off Iranians, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, Criminal penalties of trading with the Enemy Act, which, as far as I can tell, is a separate thing, but this is law that'll hit you with all of it. For individuals, it's up to a quarter million dollars. For organizations, it's up to a million dollars, or twice the gain or loss from the transaction. Oh, yeah, that can hurt you if you're paying uh, (laughs) $20 million in uh, Bitcoin. Yeah. And the other thing, the thing that that, that the lawyer who gave the talk was very insistent about talking about is that those penalties apply to any financial institution in the transaction chain. Mm. So if you don't have the Bitcoin on hand to pay off your, your, your hack, you have to talk to your bank and the bank says, well, why are you taking out millions of dollars? Oh, we're buying Bitcoin to pay off a ransomware. Right. And they're going, who are you paying off? Because our ass is on the line too. Yeah. So maybe you find it very difficult or impossible to buy the Bitcoins in a timely fashion because the financial institutions have this liability too. Mm. Hmm. So part of the reason that we talked about how much it costs to deal with some of these events is how long does it take to recover? Because some of those costs, even in kind of the best case, the Louisiana case, uh, where they only spent about $3 million in recovery. Mm -hmm. That's $3 million because of all the time and effort it takes to get back to full operations. Right. Yeah. So you have to take that into account when you're talking about recovery and what it actually costs you to not pay. Yeah. And like just taking also into account that a lot of these places, especially these smaller counties and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. there's probably just one guy. Yeah, doing their entire infrastructure. So, you know, he's already behind the eight ball like every day that he wakes up. Yeah, and then to have everything ransomware and to be able to need to recover very quickly, it's like, yeah, all right, well, I quit. Like, (laughs) (laughs) and now you probably tripled the costs. Yeah, and not that I'm advocating paying necessarily. I'm just saying that we have to be very aware of the economic incentives systemically Mm. of what we're dealing with. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the other question is, and you brought it up earlier, are your backups safe? You have them in the cloud, but what if the bad guys get to the cloud? We know from some of these incidents that they'll do some of the same things that APTs will do. The Sunburst stuff absolutely did that, did this kind of thing, mm. where they might harvest credentials and get into your cloud instance, and they've shown sophistication with that. Maybe they mess with your cloud backups. Right. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I've discovered over the last couple of years is that the state of cloud monitoring for security is, let's say, underdeveloped at this moment. Mm. It's really hard to, I've had a hard time finding things online to give me good advice about what we're doing uh, and what we should be doing. I know that I personally spent multiple weeks 
really digging into the Amazon CloudTrail logs to fully understand how those things interacted because tracking down an incident wasn't something that was that's obvious to do in there right within one of those now to amazon's credit they've released a service pretty recently that helps work some of that out called detective i still found that less than what i would want but they have made improvements the, the fact is that the state of cloud monitoring is still kind of in its infancy. Right. We may know a lot about logs, but this is a whole new set of stuff to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this was ransomware to doom and gloom. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, this just basically highlights the fact that, uh, hey, cybersecurity, uh, spend more money on it, please. Yeah. Well, a thing that I found that I've been thinking about a lot on the plane ride back and stuff thinking about a presentation that I'm trying to prepare for my customer is there's been a lot of focus, especially in the government world about advanced persistent threat, the government world and critical infrastructure, private companies and stuff. And now we're seeing ransomware being a very significant threat. Yeah. A lot of critical pieces of ransomware working involves command and control and lateral movement, uh -huh. which are exactly the things that we're trying to to prepare for when we're trying to defend against advanced persistent threat, Right. that we weren't exactly on the wrong track, that a lot of the defenses that we have work in both arenas. Yeah. But it's scary to see your entire network go down. Yeah. 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 Jeez. Remember, I remember when I was um, still teaching, having like a few people come to me uh, from the college just because they had got you know ransomware on their laptop and asked mm. me if I could reverse it. I was like, nope. <laughs> like, I hope you had backups. Yeah. Well, back in, back about 10-ish years ago, and as we, I, I think, talked about in the, in the first ransomware episode, you could be reasonably confident that within six months or a year, somebody would have had a decryptor. But that's right, yeah. really no longer the case. Now, as it happens for the Kesia um, incident, um, there is a decryptor out there now. Um, oh, okay. As of uh, late July, I believe I saw articles about there being a universal decryptor for the Kesha malware, but that is atypical. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, like it used to be, you could recover from these things if you were willing to wait long enough, <laughs> or you were <laughs> yeah. you were infected late enough in the in the process. But nowadays, right. it's just not something you can expect. No, there, and then, yeah, like even back in the day when you you could like wait it out a little while like yeah it all depended on what your organization was responsible for because it's like yeah. yeah if you it's like if you're a hospital uh you can't wait it out as you know like it causes you know irreversible damage to people and, yeah or like you know municipalities like you can't wait it out as people just go hungry and like you know mm -hmm. your traffic system doesn't work and like other stuff like that like yeah yeah, yeah you, and we know that this that those critical infrastructures are impacted. In fact, one of the reports I was looking at about ransomware in 2021, I think it was 2021, it might have been 2019, was that a bunch of healthcare providers and hospitals um, were affected by ransomware. Yeah. So it's a real thing that happens. And I worked at a hospital for a little while, and it became apparent that there was a difference between, you know, mission critical and life critical. Yeah, 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 exactly. 
that's that, that that's that's what i had for for ransomware part two uh i the one thing i did realize is that it wouldn't be that hard for us to just become the ransomware cast yeah there's enough of it there really is <laughs> recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.